Hello, this is Dr. Yoho, and this is Surviving Healthcare Podcast. And I have an, quite a wonderful guest today who is a contemporary of mine, and we both cause we both practice cosmetic surgery. I don't know whether he's still practicing some, but I'm obviously off down another rabbit hole, and I think he is too. I hate to use that word. That's kind of a 20s-something uh, expression, so I apologize for that. So this is Nicholas Brandy. He's a physician, and he is uh, primarily interested in cancer treatments with lifestyle and diet. And he's developed a, uh, he wrote, wrote a book about that in, that was published in 2019. And uh, he's has quite a following and he talks about that. He consults about that. And I think he's done a lot of uh, good in the world. And I hope, I hope, I hope I am too. But uh, so I, I, rather than give you a more formal introduction to that, let me just um, let the thing develop as or, as we talk about it. First of all, I'm 69. I think you're roughly the same age. Is that correct? Yeah, same age. Born you, you have considerably more hair. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you did hair. hair uh, you were a hair specialist. So we, we don't have to talk about your cosmetic okay. procedures. But uh, I, the thing I want to boast about is uh, Nick and I have done something that no one else in the world has done. And you know what that is, of course. It's it's unique to us. We're double board certified in cosmetic surgery and emergency medicine. And to the best of my knowledge, we're the only ones in the known universe who, who've done that. Is that correct? That might be true. <laughs> right. We were, we were double board certified. I renewed mine twice. So I was board certified in cosmetic surgery for 30 years. And of course we're, I'm past that now at 69. Um, and I haven't been, I haven't been involved with that in uh, decades, but, uh, so we're essentially, we're old dogs here. We're kicking around past, uh, adventures <laughs> and we were very macho once, and I think we're uh, still contributing. So, uh, now, Nick, can you briefly run over your cosmetic surgery career? I, I think you're very well known in hair transplant and uh, maybe some scalp lifting. Well, actually, I, I started uh, as a world-known expert in hair restoration surgery. I published about 70 articles in the uh, scientific literature. I gave you know probably over 100 lectures at international meetings on it. But, um, but I evolved into really doing the full spectrum of cosmetic surgery, everything from facelifting to blepharoplasty to breast augmentation to tummy tucks, uh, et cetera. And I've done that, you know, for uh, 40 years, a couple of years ago, we had some uh, investors come in at, see what they wanted to purchase my uh, plastic surgery and med spa slash anti-aging center. So uh, it was about two and a half years ago, I sold my practice, uh, to them. And uh, this July, I actually uh, retired from uh, the whole cosmetic surgery, med spa, uh, anti-aging uh, uh, business that I was in for 42 years. So um, I want our listeners to understand <clears throat> how much energy this guy has, because, you know, again, we were contemporaries and I didn't do much in the way of academics. I published about 20 uh, papers and um, he published uh, three or four times that many. And he was involved with our professional organization, which was called American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. You were president one year, weren't you? I was a president of the uh, American Society of Hair Restoration oh, right. Surgery. And then I was on the board of directors of the uh, American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. And I actually wrote the first test for the American Board of Hair Restoration Surgery. So, so, 
so this this guy's very well qualified and high energy and he um i think we can launch into your uh, uh making your diagnosis he's involved in um cancer therapy or cancer natural approaches because he captured a diagnosis of multiple myeloma how many years ago was that it was in uh, 2017 november of 2017 uh when i was diagnosed with uh multiple myeloma i had a I was having pain in my right uh, clavicle, and I don't know what the heck was going on. It started to keep me up at night. I, I actually told my wife, I think I have bone cancer. She thought I was crazy. Um, but about a month later, I cracked my collarbone just lunging for uh, uh, some spilling water on my coffee table. And then they did a you know x-ray, MRI, and so forth. They found out I had a plasma cytoma and then you know multiple myeloma. So that was five years ago and he's, yeah, yeah. he's beaten the odds already. I mean, you're looking, you're looking at him right now. He's healthy. He doesn't seem to have had any weight loss and he's smiling and he's optimistic. So, oh yeah, I have a very, very high quality of life, tons of energy and, uh, uh, life is treating me good. I've been, I got into a remission just on, uh, two medications, Revlimid, uh, and dexamethasone. Um, and then my oncologist gradually kind of weaned those down to very low levels uh, so I've been in a remission. I got into remission about six months, and then I've stayed in remission uh, ever since then. That's fantastic. This is a very aggressive disease. How many? How much systemic disease did you have when you were initially diagnosed? Well, I had it in you know all my bones. I didn't right. have any uh, lytic lesions other than what was going on in my uh, clavicle, and I have a. Um, it's an IgA. Uh, capuchin, which if you read through the literature, IgA is the most aggressive of the uh, myelomas. You have IgA, IgM, IgG. IgA is the most aggressive. IgG is kind of middle of the road. And then IgM is the least aggressive. So mine was the uh, and is the most aggressive uh, multiple myeloma. Well, you you've managed to dig yourself out of this hole using your your intellect and your uh, your abilities and your energy level, and so I mean that's just a fantastic story. Very few people are able to do this. It almost takes doctor level expertise to navigate the healthcare system. It's so it's so uh, uh, crazy now. I mean, the model is keep them sick and dependent on therapy, and you seem to have uh, weaselled your way out of it now. Yeah, I mean, when I I do a lot of virtual. Uh, consultations. And then afterward, I do 24-7 cancer coaching for a lot of patients. And and I always recommend that they do some kind of conventional therapy with all the natural things that I do. And in my book, I basically talk about five different ways to approach this. I eat a whole food plant-based diet. I take about 30 herbal supplements. Uh, I talk about exercise, stress reduction, sleep, and I do intermittent fasting. So it's, you know, th these are the things that I incorporate personally, and then I advise my uh, cancer patients that I coach uh, on doing the same thing. And I keep in really close contact with these individuals. I mean, I communicate with them very frequently through text message and email. So, um, well, that's quite a lot. And now tell me about the intermittent fasting, because I missed that when I reviewed your website. Yeah, in my book, I, I write about it. There was a study that was done a few years back on breast cancer. And what they did is they, they took breast cancer patients and they broke them into two different groups. And 13 hours was the kind of the cutoff. So if you fasted more than 13 hours, you were in one group. If you fasted less than 13 hours, uh, you were in the other group. And what they found was uh, the individuals that did over 13 hours 
uh, had a 36% lower incidence of relapse compared to people that fasted less uh, than 13 hours. I mean, I personally, in fact, right now I'm still on my fast. Um, I, I fast about 16 hours a day. So I usually eat my last food about eight o'clock at night. And then I usually don't eat until noon. Um, and then I eat, you know, most of my food, in fact, all my food from about 12 o'clock to eight o'clock. So I eat it like kind of in an eight hour window. So you're, you're a vegan and not a vegetarian. I'm vegan, right? Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't even like to use the word vegan. I, I like to use the word whole food plant-based because, you know, Dr. John McDougall wrote a really good book. It was called the starch solution. And he had a, like a great chapter and it. it was called the fat vegan. <laughs> and the fat vegan is somebody that eats like, you know, corn chips, potato chips all day, Coke, you know, beer, and they call themselves a vegan. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so I, I don't even like to use the word vegan. I, I really like to use the word, you know, whole food plant based because, it, you know, if you eat that way, you're going to get almost all of your nutrients except for, you know, vitamin B12. And even with that, you, you, most of the plant milks, uh, cereals are vitamin B12 uh, fortified. But I do strongly recommend uh, a B12 supplement for anybody that eats whole food plant based. So, you know, in looking at your uh, panoply of, things you recommend um you know it's always uh, you know we're emergency physicians so we simplify do the patient go upstairs or do they get admitted right or they, do they go right, out the right, street exactly. that's the thing so i my uh, guess is that this is the most important part of your program and i think you've probably done this since the very start when you when you first well what's what's really interesting you know i told you i had an anti-aging uh, division in in my uh, practice for about 25 years so i've always had an interest in health and nutrition in fact when i was 10 years old i used to read prevention magazine every every month and when i went to medical school my mother would send me you know the copy after she was done with it so i've always had kind of a passion uh for you know health uh, and nutrition so i've read well over 400 books on health and nutrition. So I was on a vacation. And when I'm on vacation, I always read a book on health and nutrition. So I was on a cruise. And this was actually uh, about a, a two months before I got diagnosed, before I broke my collarbone. And a book called uh, How Not to Die. I don't know if you've yeah, read it. Yeah, I know all about Grieger. Yeah, it's an excellent book. It's about this. It's probably yeah, about two inches I've thick. read it. And half of it are scientific references. So I'm reading through this book and, you know, the scientific references were just mind blowing. And it was just showing that, you know, people that ate more whole food plant based cultures that ate more whole food plant based had lower incidence of cancer, cardiovascular disease, you know, metabolic disease, diabetes and all cause mortality. So on the cruise, this was a Viking cruise and the food is amazing there. I decided to go whole food plant based. So for two weeks. I wasn't eating any meat and dairy and I wasn't eating all those crazy desserts and so forth. My wife thought I was crazy, but uh, she eventually has come on board. She's become a, you know, an excellent uh, vegan cook, but I came back and it was actually the week after I came back from that cruise, I was doing a liposuction and I noticed I was getting some pain in my clavicle. And I thought it was just from doing all these lipos all, you know, for the, all these years. And it, and it just got to the point where, it finally cracked while I was watching uh, television, like I was telling you previously. Um, so I actually started eating whole food plant-based two months before I got diagnosed. And I always stress that to people. Like I don't, I didn't make this change just because I had cancer. I made the change because I read a book and the science was so overwhelming 
uh, that I, I decided to make that change. Um, and I always tell patients, if you can get on a whole food plant-based diet and get on a good routine, you know, before you start your chemo or your radiation, you're always going to do better. And that's one of the reasons why I think I've done so well, because I was kind of prepped already. Um, God works in crazy ways, I'll tell you. And that was, <laughs> that was one uh, gift that I was given. So, well, Nick, I've got a great deal of respect for you, and I understand, uh, you know, your your energy and your intellect and what you've done with your career. Uh, I want to uh, drill back down onto this thing. And, uh, you know, we're trained to make decisions and to, to use simple principles like Occam's razor that one cause is much more likely than multiple causes. And you, you recommend, uh, supplements, you recommend exercise. And obviously the exercise is clearly demonstrated to be, uh, beneficial and you recommend this, uh, diet, but you just told me in the very beginning of this interview that you're doing something else that sends you into ketosis for, uh, 12 to 14 hours a day. And my, my guess, you know, from my background is that this might be the factor that's the most important thing. Uh, do you want to address that again? Yeah. I mean, when you don't eat for 16 hours, uh, you are not in ketosis. I mean, you need to, you need to be fasting for about three days before you really get into ketosis. But the, the, the whole concept behind uh, intermittent fasting is that when you're sleeping, you know, that is, essentially fasting, even if you sleep eight hours, you're fasting during that period of time. But that's when your body is uh, really cleaning up a lot of the deleterious proteins, organelles, you know, cellular debris that's going on in your body. It's called autophagy. You've probably heard of the word before. Um, and that's when there's a lot of DNA repair. There's actually uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, DNA mutations throughout the day. I mean, typically we get about 19,000 200 uh, hits to our DNA in a typical day. And there's a lot of repair that needs to go on. So, um, so when your body's not devoting that energy to digestion and it's solely uh, dedicating that energy uh, to repair, um, you know, I, I, I think that's why in that study, when it was over 13 hours, I think that's why the patients did so much better uh, is just because you're really giving your body a chance to, to really engage in, in repair, build up the antioxidant systems that are innate in each cell. Uh, so that's, that's my theory behind that. And that's what most researchers feel happens during that intermittent fasting period. So have you done any longer fasts? Because that, no, I, they... I tell you what, I, I like food too much. <laughs> I, you know, I, when I get to day two, man, I start getting a headache and I, I just don't like to do a, uh, you know, this little Italian boy needs to get his, uh, holy <laughs> pasta. So, uh, so, um, so I, I really, uh, I, I tried long-term fasting one time and I'll, I'll never do it again. I just don't, I, I do think it's beneficial. In fact, um, I did a post on my Instagram site, uh, cancer veggie doc. Um, and it was a, it was an article that looked at, um, people that fasted actually before their chemo treatment and it, it's if you go on my site i mean this graph is amazing how much more effective the chemo is if you fast before you actually get the chemotherapy i mean it's actually mind-blowing did you do uh, that pardon me did you do that well well the thing is the way that i do my medication i it's an, I, everything's oral i don't i don't get anything you know through an iv or anything so i i can travel i can go anywhere and i pretty much can you know take my treatment. So I do 21 days 
on with Revlimid uh, seven days off and then dexamethasone I take once uh, once a week. Uh, so for me, it like the intermittent fasting works well just because like I do mine more on a daily basis rather than, you know, going in for a chemo infusion. Nice. Um, well, I, you know, I just as my personal uh, footnote to this, uh, I studied uh, Grieger's work and I became aware that he was a, quote, ethical vegan. And so are you an ethical vegan or are you a health vegan? Or both? I'm a health vegan. Yeah. 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 An ethical yeah, I'm vegan. So, I'm solely. And I, I, you know, in fact, before um, we did this podcast, I was preparing uh, a, a, a video on supplementation for vegans. And the way I started it was um, over the years, I've just noticed that people that call themselves vegan for animal rights or climate change purposes Usually they're not very well educated uh, as to what they really need to make sure they intake so they don't get deficiencies. B12 is definitely one of them, but there are other ones that I do testing for. You know, iodine uh, is one of them, even, you know, vitamin D, which I think most people are actually deficient. If you live up where we live in the north, you know, probably 90 percent of people are vitamin D deficient. I try what to keep what are your levels. vitamin D levels? I try to keep mine between 80 to 100. Good. Um, you know, like uh, my a lot of my patients, you know, my doctor tells me to keep it between 20 and 40. But I say, you know what, get it up to 80 to 100. <laughs> what dose do you take to do that? I do uh, 5,000 international units. I do um, I do a vitamin D3 uh, liquid. I put two cc's in a drink that I do every day. It's kind of a suja green juice. I put lemon, organic lemon juice, lime juice, uh, pomegranate. Uh, in it. And, uh, and I put a little 0.75 cc's of mistletoe extract. So I, I pretty much drink that all through the day. And that really is, it, it keeps me very alkaline. That's one of the other things I, I really stress to my patients is you really got to keep your pH leaning towards 7.45. I, I, I use a urine pH strip that I first thing in the morning, I pee on it. And I try to keep that urine pH um, between 6.5 and 7.2. Uh, and I, I, I've been doing this for so long, it's always really green. So, but, but people that I have first start checking, I mean, they're usually about 5.5. Most Americans that eat a standard American diet you know, have a very acidic uh, pH. And as you get older, it even gets more acidic because you have more chronic inflammation going on and in different pockets of your body, you know, your kidneys don't work quite as well. So, um, but studies do show that when you, um, and I have, I have them uh, referenced in my book that cancer really has a hard time metastasizing uh, in a alkaline pH. Um, so I, I really stress that to my, you know, cancer patients when I'm coaching them, that they really need to, you know, kind of keep their pH leaning more towards 7.45 rather than 7.35. Okay. So my listeners are watching someone who has a lot of, he's got a, a big intellect and he's got a, a lot of complicated ideas. Uh, I would emphasize that among these ideas, some of them are probably very good and some of them may not be quite as important. Um, so uh, I, you know, I, I, I want to uh, just prep, um, promote your website, naturalinsightsintocancer.com. And people can learn about what uh, Dr. Brandy's um, 
theories are, and they line up with a lot of other people. Um, there is a whole wave that says it's almost going the opposite direction that says that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the key elements of longevity and proper nutrition and so on are animal products. And so, so can you, yeah, you want to address I, that? I, I just did a video on, uh, this new rage. Uh, it's about an article that was published, uh, in frontiers and nutrition. Uh, it's called, uh, priority micronutrient density and foods. Uh, by Beal and Artenzi. And what they did is they looked at five different regions of the world. There, it was like Latin America, two areas in Africa and two areas in South Southeast Asia. And, uh, and what they did is they looked at six nutrients. So they looked at, it was like iron, zinc, calcium, uh, vi preformed vitamin A, which you typically don't find in plant foods, uh, folate, and then B12. And what I said in the video, I said, if that's the way that study was designed, I could tell you right up front that all the all the animal products were going to be at the top of the list and all the plant foods were going to be at the bottom because plant foods don't have vitamin B12. And they also don't have, most of them don't have preformed vitamin A. I think leafy vegetables are the only ones that do. So they have beta carotene, which is converted to vitamin A. But what I said in this video was, you know, if I would have designed that study looking at, you know, vitamin C, looking at fiber, looking at one of the 25,000 phytonutrients, plant foods, polyphenols, anthocyanins, you know, bio, you know, flavonoids, that chart would have been totally flipped upside down. So, you know, so there's a lot of misinformation going on right now. And, and a lot of it are poorly designed studies. Even you're probably familiar with the whole concept of, you know, saturated fat and cholesterol is good for you. <laughs> and, and, you know, that all comes from a couple of recently done studies that were very poorly designed and they were funded by the meat and dairy industry. And um, and what they did is they used as the control a really poor diet. It was mainly like high in refined carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates are probably even worse than eating saturated fat and cholesterol. So you can design any study to say whatever you want. Thousands and thousands of studies over many years. And you, and you know this uh, have have validated that. A diet high in saturated fat cholesterol increases your chance of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, cardiovascular mortality, cancer, and all-cause mortality. So, you know, but so there's a lot of really poorly designed studies that have recently come out that are, if you really look at where they fund, and I always tell people to look at where the studies were funded, they're typically funded by the meat and dairy industry. Well, um, there was a... Uh... An editorial in the British Medical Journal the year before last, and the title of the editorial was Time to Assume that me the Medical Literature is Fraudulent Until Proven Otherwise. And uh, John Ionides, who is a, a Greek um, uh, epidemiologist at Stanford and the smartest guy in the room, his opinion, and I, I have to paraphrase this because he's too careful to say this, his opinion that is that all nutritional studies are absolute garbage. For various reasons. Now he didn't say that. He said he said it was the literature was completely unreliable. So um, if you think you well, can interpret, I, I, well, I think one of the reasons that he said that is most of them are observational studies. So they, you know, they'll look at populations, you know, over you know several years and at, and you know give questionnaires like what do you typically eat on a normal day and so forth and then they'll come up with all you know what's your incidence of cancer cardiovascular disease and so forth so usually observational studies but 
One of the things I always stress with these nutritional studies, you know, if you did, let's say you did 10 studies and nine of them said that in, in studies that do show this, it's pretty uniform throughout that if you eat vegetarian, if you're a male, you typically live about 10 years longer. And if you're a female, you will normally live about six years longer. However, if you, if you do 10 studies, one of them might show that a carnivore diet is better than a vegan diet. It's just, it's the way they're designed. And also it's the law of probability. You know, you're like, so I always tell people, look at the, you know, predominance uh, of the scientific literature. You know, if, if 80, 90% of the literature saying that oh, eating a certain way is more healthy, then it, it's, it's definitely more, more uh, wise to like, take that approach. One other thing is, um, I don't like to use the word whole food plant-based uh, with a lot of my uh, patients. I, I prefer that they go that way, but if they want to introduce some, you know, meat products, um, I don't really have a problem with that, but I, it, it should be maybe five, 10%. You know, I, are you familiar with the blue zones? Have you ever yeah, read some of course. I've read yeah. about that. Yeah. So the blue zones are the areas where people, you know, live the longest. And if you look at each of those areas, like I carry Greece as one of them, Sardinia, Loma Linda, uh, Nicoya, Costa Rica, and o Okinawa, uh, they eat primarily about a 95% plant-based diet. So they do eat some animal products uh, maybe once a week. So if, if someone wants to do that, I really have no issue with that. And sometimes it's not even a bad idea because, um, you know, your iron, zinc, you know, calcium, uh, your vitamin D, you know, sometimes those can be in your iodine, uh, can be attained through maybe an occasional, you know, fatty fish, uh, that you eat. Um, so, you know, I tell my patients eat about 95%. I like to call it plant strong, uh, diet. I do think that's a healthier diet when you're uh, trying to combat cancer. So, so, um, the listeners should just think about this point is if you have to discount the literature because it's influenced by financial sources, right? If you have to, if you, once you realize that the medical literature is entirely funded or at least 75% funded by three huge organizations, the Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Fauci's completely corrupt NIAID, which has funded a trillion dollars worth of, um, medical literature over his tenure in office, uh, then you are left with something that uh, Nicholas and I would call anecdotes. And anecdotes can be very powerful. And um, his anecdote, his personal anecdote is powerful because he's still here in a disease that uh, uh, they don't do very well. They don't, they don't do as well as he's done generally. There are a few exceptions, but he's probably has gotten into the He's probably being this healthy at this point is probably in the, um, what do you think? 10% category. Yeah. Most people, if you read about multiple myeloma and multiple myeloma has definitely made huge strides uh, over the years. Um, but usually by three or four years, people have relapsed. So I'm already at five years. You know, I haven't relapsed. I'm extremely healthy. I'm still in a remission. I plan on, um, I always tell my oncologist I'm 69. I'm going to, you're going to be talking to me till you're 90. He's probably going to die before I do, though. Um, but uh, but one of the interesting things about my uh, oncologist is he's actually started to recommend some of the things <laughs> that I do, like turmeric, for example, um, is one supplement that I tell patients that they absolutely need to take. Um, I think everybody should take turmeric, actually. Um, you know, my cancer patients, I have them take eight grams 
of a more of a whole root turmeric rather than 95% uh, standardized to uh, curcumin. Um, the reason for that is that uh, there was a really good study that was done that looked at the turmeric root versus a supplement that was uh, standardized for 95% curcumin. And they uh, basically placed these extracts on five different cancers. And the turmeric root did way better for every single cancer than the curcumin. But, uh, but there were some uh, two really good studies done by uh, Golembeck in, in their group where they looked at Amgus. I don't know. Are you familiar yeah, with Amgus? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Amgus is like the precursor of multiple myeloma. It has some, and, of the, uh, some of the blood tests, but no symptoms. Exactly. But, um, but what they found was uh, people that were taking eight grams of turmeric per day, like four grams in the morning, four grams at night, um, that had Amgus, a lot of their biomarkers significantly improved, like their M-spike came down, you know, typically about 33%, a lot of their bone markers uh, improved, kidney function improved. So, um, and, and if you if you read through the literature on turmeric, I mean, there's probably about 3,000 studies on turmeric and its uh, anti-cancer effects. I mean, it really affects cancer at just about every uh, aspect of its development from, you know, from the beginning to its kind of uh, development from, you know, an early cancer to getting into metastatic cancer. Um, so turmeric is, is a supplement that I, I think is really, you know, critical uh, to patients that, uh, that are, like that are struggling with any kind of cancer. If you want to prevent it, I usually recommend two grams in the morning, two grams at night, and always take it with a black, black pepper extract. It's called bioperine. Uh, studies show that it increases the bioavailability by about 2000%. So I always take that with it. The other thing I always take with it, even though I'm a vegan, I take fish oil. And I take a lot of it. I take, I use a new age uh, fish oil. I take three in the morning, three at night because turmeric will not get absorbed without fat. So I always do that. And the other thing is I try to keep my omega-6 to omega-3 ratio to about two to one. Uh, I have a special, uh, as you probably know, omega-6 essential fatty acids are very inflammatory and omega-3 fatty acids are very anti-inflammatory. So your fish oil has high levels of EPA and DHA. Uh, which jacks up your omega-3 levels. Um, I don't know if you know this, but most Americans have a ratio of about 20 to one or 40 to one because we eat so many you know, refined foods. And a lot of the uh, meat products that we eat are high in omega-6 because they're fed you know, grains. But, um, but when I check my omega-6 to omega-3, and I do check that on my patients, uh, my last time I, I checked it was about 1.9 to one. So I do think it's important to take a fish oil uh, supplement, not only for the absorption of the turmeric, but also to jack up your anti-inflammatory levels. Because I have a whole area in my book about inflammation. Cancer cannot survive in a microenvironment with no inflammation. I mean, they've done studies, but it just, it just won't grow. So you have to have inflammation um, for a cancer to actually thrive and metastasize. It's an inflammatory disease. So let me read this list of supplements that you recommend. And you, if turmeric and curcumin, and you said, I think curcumin is a derivative of turmeric. Is that correct? No, but there's, there's 300 plus phytochemicals in the turmeric root. 
There's Zingarol, Coumarol, you know, the, the curcumin. So curcumin is one of 300 different phytonutrients in the turmeric root. Um, so when they compared the turmeric root with all the different phytonutrients compared to just curcumin, the turmeric root worked better. Um, and the reason it does, and I have a whole lecture on my website about the synergy of phytochemicals. You know, if you take, there was one study that, for instance, it was done where they um, looked at onion extract, grape extract against breast cancer. And the onion extract killed about 20% of the cancer, the breast cancer cells. Uh, the grape extract killed about 50%. But when they did a half and half onion extract, it killed about 80%. So there was a synergistic effect. So two plus two was seven, wasn't five. So when you eat food, for example, uh, there's over 25,000 phytonutrients in plant foods. And it's really the synergy of all these different phytochemicals that God put in these foods that actually give you this incredibly powerful synergistic effect. Um, so that's, that's why I, I, I strongly you know, urge my patients to really eat a variety of different fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, um, you know, in their diet because of the synergistic effect. In fact, you're going to think I'm crazy, but before I take my supplements, like when we're done here, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to, I do two, before I take my supplements and it's mainly for the phytonutrient bang, but also the synergy, I do two almonds, two walnuts, two pecans, two hazelnuts, uh, a few pistachio nuts, some pumpkin seeds, some peanuts. And then I, I take my, then I take my supplements. I take my fish oil and my turmeric and all the different things that I take. But, um, but once again, I could take a handful of walnuts, but I want to take advantage of the synergy of all the different phytonutrients in those different uh, nut foods. So, so reading this list, we've got curcumin. Th these are the things that you believe are uh, the best bang for the buck in terms of supplements, curcumin, turmeric, alpha lipoic acid, vitamin E, omega-3, which is the fish oil, right? Vitamin right. C, vitamin D, and vitamin K2. And you didn't mention magnesium, but if you can just address the imp relative importance of all that, because I'm a simple thinker and I like to think in terms of one or two solutions and not, not, you know, Merck, um, your, well, well, your mentor there, is, the yeah. Dr. Grieger is a complicated thinker and he believes yeah. in all kinds of uh, complexity in, in diet and thinks that you should do all that. So go ahead. Well, you know, Dr. Greger, for example, there's two supplements that he takes. He's not a big supplement guy. He's into like getting all your phytochemicals from, from food. And the two supplements that he takes wherever he goes are turmeric and amla. Amla is Indian gooseberry. And Indian gooseberry is the most potent uh, antioxidant on the face of the earth. Uh, it's the ORAC units are off the wall. You know, it lowers blood sugars. It has like an like an incredible effect on cholesterol or your lipid profile. I mean, it's kind of crazy what it does to blood pressure and so forth. But, um, but when you're fighting cancer, it's a totally different animal. You know, like people that think they're just going to like kill trillions of cancer cells with their diet, they're another they're in another dimension. In fact, I've had patients like you know that are doing just trying to do natural approaches, and and I've had to make it so scary for them that they, I finally got them to do some treatment. So you really need to do both. You need to do conventional therapy, and I I always you know tell my patients, you know, ask your um, oncologist if he could you know give you the lowest dose possible 
and do it metronomically. You know, I don't know if you ever read about metronomic. Is that on and off? Is that what you mean? Yeah. But, well, like what a lot of uh, oncologists do is they'll give you like a massive dose once a month. And what happens when you do that, you know, in that period where you're resting, you know, the, the cancer has a chance to develop angiogenesis, which are blood vessels that help it survive uh, and metastasize. Um, so when you do it metronomically, you do a lower dose, but you do it weekly. And typically the side effects are a lot less and you don't really give the cancer a chance to develop those extra blood vessels and angiogenesis. So I, I usually, you know, ask my patients, don't get intimidated by the white coat because a lot of patients are, you know, just ask your doctor, say, I was, hey, I was doing some reading and so forth. And I was talking to a, you know, a medical doctor and he felt, you know, like maybe if, if you could do it metronomically instead of, you know, one big dose every month, um, I would have less side effects and it would be more effective. Um, but, but I do think, you know, you do need to supplement with some, you know, really, you know, good herbs and all the herbs in my book, I've highly you know, researched. Um, and I have all the, I have over 500 references in my, in my book. Um, you know, I'm not going to take something just for the heck of it, but, you know, but the ones that I, I think are the most important. And when I finish my consults, I always send a letter to the patient. The ones that I think are most important, I put three asterisks next to it. If it's less important, I put two asterisks. And if it's like the least important, I put one. And I let them choose. And I, you can get all of the supplements that I recommend on Amazon. Um, I try to keep the cost down as much as I can. But I would say the most important ones that have the three asterisks would be the turmeric, the fish oil, you know, adding the black uh, pepper extract, uh, ginger, garlic are extremely important, ashwagandha, uh, astragalus uh, is another one that's really important. And, you know, just, uh, and there's also a mushroom uh, extract that I think is very important. You know, mushrooms have the blade, you know, the beta-2 glucans, which really have a strong uh, immune boosting effect. So they're the ones that I, you know, usually put the triple asterisk on. And then there's a lot of other ones that I do that are more fruits like mangosteen. Most, before I started to do this research, I didn't, I didn't even know what tech mangosteen was. <laughs> Um, but magazine, like noni fruit, uh, for example, are, are some of the ones that I've done a lot of research on. And one other thing that I do want to point out, um, and I have a, a video that's coming out soon on it, are freeze-dried powders. Um, do you do freeze-dried powders at all? No. Yeah. Well, if you get a freeze-dried powder you know, on Amazon, one gram of, for instance, blueberry freeze-dried powder is like eating 50 grams of blueberries. You know, most fruit are 90% water. So the freeze-dried uh, process that they use, it gets all the water out of it, maintains all the nutrients. But in the morning, I actually do a, an organic light roast coffee that I get from Costco. I use a Keurig, and I add 10 different powders to the coffee you know, cacao powder, there's like raspberry, strawberry, uh, blackberry, uh, uh, let's see, acai berry that I use. There's a mushroom, make a mushroom that I use. So I add all these, I add a little bit of baking soda to alkalinize the coffee because coffee is very uh, acidic. Put a little bit of cinnamon, I put a little pinch of clove and then some stevia. And I do about a tablespoon of cacao powder. So it tastes like hot chocolate. In fact, I can't wait to wake up in the morning because it's because it tastes so great. But when I do that first thing in the morning, and that's that's during my fast, I consider I'm still in my fast when I do that. Um, I 
I, to me, it's like doing an infusion of chemo because these phytochemicals, I mean, there's probably 15,000 phytochemicals in that drink that I do in the morning and they are highly intensified. And if you look at all the different things that phytochemicals do, I mean, I have a whole, like there's one chapter I, I have what phytochemicals do in a nutshell. It's kind of a, like a summary of all the research, but I mean, they call they, they cause cancer cell uh, apoptosis. Uh, they kind of screw up the cell signaling between these uh, cancer cells. They disrupt the uh, cell cycle at various aspects uh, of the uh, cell division of the cancer cell. You know, they fragment the DNA. One thing that's really interesting is that when an antioxidant gets into the cell, and remember, cancer cells have high copper and iron levels. They just need those high levels to actually, you know, metabolize and survive. When the antioxidant goes into the cancer cell, it actually becomes a free radical through the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Fenton reaction, but, but the antioxidant will actually destroy the cancer cell. This was proven through molecular so probe. Technology. This is a little, this is a little deep for most of my listeners and, and also probably a little deep for me, but it, just for the people who there's no doubt about your enthusiasm and your convictions, uh, but for, and for people who want to pursue this direction, um, again, it's naturalinsightsintocancer.com. And Dr. Grieger, who is like the ringleader of all these vegans, he's got nutritionfacts.org. Now, I would say it's more like loose nutrition opinions.org that would be a more appropriate title for his website but and if now, you want I, to like i i totally disagree with you i know you like, do. like let me like, just finish fact, let me fact, just finish i tell my patients yeah. like to subscribe to that because you get a you get a they make a video every day yeah i know and, and it's, it's I, very I convincing it's it's but, very convincing and you it, all the listeners should go over there and have a look at it because it drives the vegan people and they believe it and I think that it's loose, but you know, it, it, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Like everybody's got no, why, a backside, why, right? Why, why do you think it's loose? Well, I've, you know, Ioannidis, Ioannidis says that all those studies are garbage essentially. Now he doesn't say that like that, but I respect his opinion. And if you just, I'm just going to wrap this up, you know, and because your stuff is interesting and a lot of my uh, listeners are going to go to your website and maybe even consult with you. Um, but if you want uh, opposing opinions, have a look at Hormone Secrets and read the diet chapter, because I don't think all this is quite as clear as you lay it out to be. And certainly, I don't think that every single factor that uh, can possibly be are part of the solution for cancer or anything else. Let me just let me just dive. I want to chat with you a bit about um, oncology and some of the other treatments that you've uh, uh, may or may not have done. Have you ever had stem cell treatment? Um, when I first started, I actually did stem cell treatments. Uh, we used to do the liposuction and then we- but This is a specific stem cell treatment for your multiple yeah, myeloma. Yeah, and I did, had I, I had one of my nurses do a little bit of lipo on me. We take it through a 32-step process and we get it down to a stem cell pellet. And then we, we would send it to, there's a, like a bank in Fort Lauderdale, and they would basically culture the stem cells. So when I first got diagnosed, I actually uh, had them send me up uh, a stem cell, you know, from the bank, they would send me up 
uh, a little vial of stem cells. Uh, I forget how many million there were in each uh, each vial, but I had my nurses just injected in me, and you know, primarily to keep my uh, my red cell counts uh, and my white cell counts in, a, in at a good level because a lot of these drugs uh, do suppress the bone marrow. I did that for. I think I did it like probably six times and then I just didn't do it anymore because I was doing really well and my blood counts were maintained. So uh, so I, I did do that, but I didn't do a stem cell transplant. The, st the stem cell transplant is a tremendously aggressive treatment for, for this problem of yours where they just wipe you out completely and then they retransplant your bone marrow with stem cells that they've either harvested from you or another person. And I, I was just going to bring up the idea that that seems to be, the studies on that seem to be survivorship bias. In other words, they are taking only the most healthy people to do the therapy. And so my interpretation of literature as perceived through oncologists who I've spoken to um, is that that is uh, useless, doesn't work, and is actually quite hazardous. 10% of them die during the treatment, <laughs> you know, so that doesn't sound yeah. so good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, in fact, I've counseled some people that were ready to get, I have a good friend of mine, 43 years old, plastic surgeon down in Dallas. He was ready to get a stem. In fact, he got diagnosed like six months before me. It was kind of weird the way that it happened. But uh, he was already to do a stem cell transplant. I referred him to uh, Dr. Berenson in Beverly Hills. He's kind of like one of the gurus of myeloma. And um, and he he totally doesn't believe in stem cell transplant. He doesn't. In fact, he has right. the highest survival rates in the world. That's great. And he, he does not do any stem cell transplants. And I and my friend consulted with him and he put him on a certain regimen and most oncologists really respect Dr. Berenson because he's very well known. And then they, they just kind of do his protocol, but I've, I've recommended Dr. Berenson to many, many people. Um, but when you do a stem cell transplant, first off, they've shown that it doesn't improve the overall survival. Like you'll get a period of, of um, uh, where, where you won't be, uh, you know, it won't progress. They call it progression free right. survival. But as far as the overall survival, they've found that it doesn't improve that at all. And and really to go through something like that, where, yeah, it's horrible. where you lose all your hair, you're laying months up in the hospital, like months, you yeah. know, that's what I told my friend. I go, he just opened up a surgery, you know, facility. I said, man, what, you're crazy doing that. So he's doing great. I mean, he's been in remission for a while. He actually follows a, a whole food plant based diet, too. And he's doing like wonderfully. So I'm curious about your reaction to my take on oncologists and uh i'm intensely cynical about oncologists they have they do have a very difficult job they deal with all these horrible problems they deal with the families uh, but they i don't know whether you're aware of this but they get 20 percent kickback on every medication they administer in their office which is uh -huh. an unbelievable conflict of interest they make over half of their money from this their salaries have gone up almost it seems like it's exponentially maybe i shouldn't use that word um and they're they only have about five or six diseases that they can effectively treat. Now, fortunately, you are in one of those categories, you know, testicular cancer, a few lymphomas, non, you know, I think it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They all have treatments for those, but everything else, their goal is to improve survivorship by less than two months. And that's their stated goal in the literature. So I'm not very impressed with these guys as a group. And I think they're, unbelievably expensive it's one of the top expenses in healthcare and i think it's it's almost completely ineffective but that said if you have a problem 
you'd better do your research and hope they've got something to help you. Because if they do, you can survive uh, like Nick has and do very well and thrive, you know, and what's your take on what I said? Well, I'll tell you one thing about oncologists. When you mention that you're going to take any supplements, it's a knee jerk reaction. They automatically say, don't take the supplements. And I, you know, in my book, I have two really good studies. I mean, one was done by Keith Block, Dr. Block, you know, uh, I think it was published in 2007 where he analyzed 965 studies where they looked at people that took antioxidants with their cancer treatments. And they, what he found was it had no negative effect on the treatment. A lot of them actually were able to like finish their treatment because they weren't getting as many side effects. Um, there was another one. It was, uh, it was an analysis. I think it was like 285 studies and it showed the same thing, but that's one thing that I really have a, like a pet peeve about how they just automatically say, don't take any supplements. Um, the other thing, uh, about oncologists, as you probably know, the National Cancer Institute recommends nine servings of fruits and vegetables for the prevention of cancer. And that, and that's one of the things I always tell people, you know, when I talk about whole food plant-based diet, I mean, that is not way out left field because the National Cancer Institute recommends nine servings of fruits and vegetables for a reason. It's because the medical and the scientific literature shows that people and cultures that eat more plant foods have less cancer. So I asked my oncologist, I said, why don't you tell your patients just to eat nine servings of fruits and vegetables per day? I mean, how hard is that to do? You know, and none of them do. And it, it just totally blows my mind. And as far as the drugs, I have an interesting story for you. Revlimid is the drug that I primarily take for multiple myeloma. And um, it costs me with my copay $980 per month. I spend about $12,000 a year on this revlimid it's I found, a bargain it, it's a bargain nick it, it, <laughs> if it keeps you alive it's a bargain well here's the deal i uh in in march of 2022 uh there's two forms of revlimid that got uh, fda approval in a generic form and they're both companies in india so i found an indian source that's very reliable and i've been using uh that that's called lenalidomide. I pay $55 for 30 capsules <laughs> just to show you the ripoff that's going on with all these drug companies. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. 90% of our medications in America are now generics because the proprietary drugs, which are more reliable in terms of their manufacture, uh, have, they, they've jacked the prices up so high. It's, it's insane, as you say. And there's a yeah. drug called Dara, which we spoke about, that's twelve or fourteen thousand dollars a month. <laughs> you know, can yeah, you imagine? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, before, I mean, if I, if I didn't have insurance, I'd be paying sixteen thousand dollars a month. I mean, yeah. that's what I'd be paying. And you know, the so. oncologist, if if he administers in the office, he gets twenty uh, percent of it. You, wow. you know, the uh, for the Lupron injections, the the urologist is something like ten thousand dollars for a Lupron injection. They get two thousand dollars for a one second shot take some one, you know, they say, hi, there's your shot. Goodbye. Wow, <laughs> Once a month, you know? So before I, I, I want to ask you what you think we missed, but before that, I don't want to miss a couple of things that I have questions about that I thought you might have some, um, opinions about or expertise in. So, um, first of all, what about seed oils? 
Now that's considered yeah, by some only, sources the only seed oil be I problematic. Think a supplement, and I do think it's an important supplement. I mean, in the black. diet, in the diet, in larger quantities. That's what we're talking about when we talk about I, seed oil. The oils. only oils that I use are I use uh, a first cold pressed extra virgin olive oil, and and it should be first cold pressed extra virgin. That's what it should say on the label. And uh, and I have about three pages about extra virgin olive oil. Actually, it has a it's a really potent anti-cancer effect. I mean, 46% of olive oil polyphenols, or they're called saccharidoids. I don't know if you've heard of them before, but, you know, they've done uh, studies on uh, breast cancer stem cells, and it, it really has a dramatic effect on knocking those babies out. And, and the cancer stem cell is really how people get relapses. I mean, they're really not sensitive to a lot of these chemotherapy uh, drugs because they divide at a slower rate. Um and the other thing about the sacoridoids, they really affected about 160 genes. So there was a really strong epigenetic effect where it made some of the good genes act better and some of the bad genes act less bad. Um, as far as cooking, I think um, avocado oil is your best oil. It has kind of the same profile as olive oil. Um, it has a very high smoke point. I think it's 468 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you're going to cook, I recommend either using vegetable broth or uh, an avocado oil. But as far as all the other vegetable oils, um, like like grapeseed oil, for example, I mean, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is, I mean, it's something like 2,000 to 1. And it's like, it's crazy. So they're, they tend to be very pro-inflammatory. And most of your corn chips and potato chips and so forth, they almost all have, you know, seed oils in them that are very, you know, pro-inflammatory. So I, I really don't recommend, uh, you know, any oils other than really uh, extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil. And I take a supplement, black seed oil, which I think has an extremely potent anti-cancer effect. In fact, we sprinkle black cumin seeds on our salads every night. Um, oh. if, you, if you go into literature, like read about black cumin seeds, it'll blow your mind. <laughs> the anti-cancer. So, so before we let you wrap this up, however you'd like, uh, let me just ask you about the other food groups besides protein, fat, and carbohydrate. And those are alcohol and caffeine. <laughs> so what do you think about those? Well, I, I don't have, in fact, if you look at the literature on coffee, for example, coffee drinkers definitely live way longer than people that don't. If you look I at hope, set, I hope that's if true. If you look at centenarians, almost all of them drink coffee. And <laughs> one thing you probably don't know, your listeners probably don't know this, but um, most Americans get the majority of their antioxidants from coffee, believe it or not. Um, so, as far as the coffee and the caffeine, I have absolutely no problem with that. Now, the alcohol, I just did a video on that. It's going to come out on my Instagram site shortly, but. You know, alcohol consumption has become kind of a cultural thing. And and I'll be quite honest with you, most doctors don't even tell patients to, you know, stop drinking alcohol because they imbibe themselves every day. So it's kind of become a cultural thing. And there's this false uh, idea that alcohol is good for you. And it really came, you're familiar with the French paradox, you know, where, you know, in France, they did these studies where people that drank alcohol actually had a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease. But Fillmore, in his research group, they analyzed those studies. And what they found was people that were calling themselves teetotalers were actually people that had like cirrhosis, severe liver disease, and they stopped drinking totally because they had a life-threatening problem. Then when he looked at 
further studies that called teetotalers as people that never drank. They had way less incidence of cancer, cardiovascular disease, all cause mortality. So, um, so I'm not a big fan of drinking. If, I mean, if you go through the studies, like with breast cancer, you know, even three to four drinks a week, you know, it really does jack up your, uh, your uh, cancer rate by about 15%. And then every drink on top of that uh, is another 10% risk, which is pretty, pretty significant. And then there was a, a really good study uh, that was recently uh, done. It was in the British Journal of Cancer, and it looked at like 486 precip precipitants. I think it reviewed like, it was like 580 studies. And what they found is alcohol increases your chances of getting just about every kind of cancer, you know, oral cancer, pharynx, larynx, lung. So you're uh, personally a uh, teetotaler. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't drink any alcohol at all. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's, when you're, that's what we and, wanted and, to hear. This, and one, one thing I always stress to my patients is, you know, when you have cancer, you are fighting a very formidable disease that wants to put you in the grave. <laughs> and, you know, I've had a couple of patients go, Hey, do I have to give up my, you know, my wine and my cheese? And I go, you know what, you do whatever you want to do. I, I'm just giving you advice. You know, I, rec I strongly recommend not doing either one of them, but if they want to do it, I'm, I can't, I can't follow them around. I can't put a gun to the head, you know, like, and, you know, so, you know, but I, I, but alcohol is a toxin. I mean, when you, when you take it in, it gets metabolized to acetaldehyde, which is a cousin of formaldehyde. And that's converted to acetic acid, free radical, which creates a lot of damage to your body. It causes cancer, cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, it, it basically, you know, makes us age a lot quicker than we really need to. Nick, you're, it's wonderful to talk to you. It's, you're more of an Eskimo who's describing a hundred names for snow than I am. I'm a popularizer and a simplifier. So I, I'm trying to dive in and figure out. Well, well what, I'll tell you what, I, yeah. I can simplify the whole thing for you. Um, basically, my book talks about the five basic principles to basically survive, thrive, with cancer and um and prevent if you're somebody that just wants to prevent it so i i just break it into five simple things you know one is a whole food plant-based diet and if you just want to call it a plant strong diet you know try to eat primarily plant but if you want to add some you know animal products in there you can but i wouldn't make that i'd make that maybe five at the most 10 percent of your diet then i have targeted supplements and i when I do a consult, I kind of point those out. I stress to people you need to get about at least seven hours of sleep per night. I think that's incredible. And I, you also need to keep your stress down because stress is definitely correlated with, with cancer and then the intermittent fasting. So it's really five simple principles. It really is not complicated. But, you know, when I do a consult, I spend, I have like a one or two hour consult and then I do 24-7 coaching after that. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you really need to know. So it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a constant educational, you know, process that these patients have to go through. Well, that's great. Is there any, are there any other last points we want to wrap up? It's all available from Nick's website, natural insights into cancer.com. And are there any other uh, points that we forgot? Or yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I would strongly recommend to people read my book, uh, it's called beat back cancer naturally. They, they can get it on Amazon, a paper form, Kindle audio. I also sell it on my website. In fact, I have a Christmas special going on right now. Um, and I do, when they order on the website, I do give them a signed copy. Um, and it costs about the same as what it costs on Amazon. But I, I would strongly recommend uh, reading that because, as you can see from our discussion, there's a lot of information that you need to know. 
And what I always say is, you know, you're not going to change your diet. You're not going to give up the pizza and the chicken wings if you don't know why. So it's really important to be educated. And that's one of the reasons I, I really tell patients to, you know, watch those uh, nutritionfacts.org. Uh, I know you don't like that website, but I love it. Uh, watch watch a video every day. Like I usually watch a video while I'm getting right. They're only like five minutes. That's what's really neat about them. Um, and they're basically it's article after article after article. I mean, it's all you know. They they just so you know they review one hundred ninety thousand articles per year. That's three thousand six hundred. You and I could never do that. So they have a team of like twenty scientists that review all these all this literature. And uh, so education is extremely important because if you're not educated on a daily basis, you're not going to change. Okay. So just for my listeners sake, and they may know this and may, may not, not know this, but Nick here, who is a dyed in the wool vegan is speaking to someone who's almost hundred percent carnivore. And I <laughs> I've looked at the other, I've looked at the other, the other half of things. And I don't think the evidence is quite as robust as uh, Nick says it is, but uh, just like everything else in uh, life, you, you better look a, at, look at the evidence yourself thing. and make your own decisions. Okay. Do you want me to give you like 10 points why I think carnivore? Nick, Nick go ahead. We're, okay. It's your podcast. Okay. First off, it's very high. Almost all animal products are very high in, in saturated fat and cholesterol. And I, I went over that. And, you know, if you want to argue the, the scientific literature, I, there's thousands of articles that show that high saturated fat cholesterol definitely are correlated with a poor lipid profile, which is then correlated with cardiovascular disease. Animal products have way more toxins than vegetables. And it's because of bioaccumulation. You know, when, when, a, when a fish, for example, fishes have the highest levels of PCBs and dioxins uh, in, their, uh, in their fat tissue, um, there was a, a really good uh, study that was done in the uh, Environmental Journal uh, international uh, 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 Journal of Environmental Science. And what they did is they evaluate the fat tissue of wild-caught salmon outside of Seattle. And they found there were 81 prescription drugs bioaccumulated in their fat tissue. So the problem is the waters are so damn contaminated <laughs> that if you eat fish, uh, you know, you're getting a ton of contaminants. You're getting all these microplastics. Uh, Mer that mercury, are, mercury dwarfs all the rest mercury. of it. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, when you eat a, a larger fatty fish, you're getting really high, you know, mercury levels. Um, and even like the bivalves, you know, they're, they're filter feeders, you know, they have high levels of toxins, you know, your shellfish, their bottom feeders. And even if they're farm raised, I mean, they, they're exposed to all kinds of pesticides and, and uh, antibiotics. And one of the things I always stress to people that are primarily meat eaters, remember, when you eat meat, it is a dead animal and it, it lived just like you. It had hormones, it had testosterone, estrogen, growth hormone. Um, you know, it has bioaccumulated, you know, pesticides uh, in the fat tissue. So, um, so when you eat a meat product, you're getting all those hormones and so forth, but you're also getting, you know, the bacteria, the viruses, the parasites, um, the diseases that that animal had. And even when you cook it, you're going to kill the bacteria, but you don't kill the endotoxins. And the endotoxins basically stay in your bloodstream for about six hours. And they're very pro-inflammatory. So if you're eating meat all day, if you eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, basically you have a very high inflammatory level uh, in your uh, bloodstream. And then you know when you cook meat, when you dry cook it, you get all these nitrosamines, heterocyclic amines, 
uh, advanced glycation uh, end products, aromatic, uh, you know, uh, poly uh, aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, and, you know, and those are extremely uh, carcinogenic. Um, the other uh, thing that I always like to point out is when you eat a high carnivore diet, your fiber levels are very low. And I did, I did a whole video on the microbiome. Um, they basically put two groups of people on two different diets, carnivore, plant-based for five days. And in five days, the microbiome changed dramatically. The plant-based uh, diet, uh, the microbiome, the Prevotella, which are primarily the good bacteria, proliferated tremendously. The bad bacteria went down, which are the bacteroides. With the carnivore, the bacteroides increased dramatically, and then the Prevotella decreased dramatically. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the microbiome, and there's about 37 to 39 trillion bacteria in gut. Um, and the good bacteria release these short-chain fatty acids that are extremely uh, anti-inflammatory, and they jack up your natural killer cell activity, and they feed the epithelial cells of the, of the colon, prevent leaky gut syndrome. Um, some, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with leaky gut, but you know, in, in the immune system, uh, in the gut, that some researchers feel that 70, 80% of your immune function is actually centered in your gut. So when you're eating a high carnivore diet, you're getting no fiber. Your, um, your microbiome changed dramatically, even in five days, so that the bad bacteria, which when, they're, when they metabolize the, the processed foods and the, and the meat and so forth, release uh, these secondary bile acids that are very carcinogenic, uh, cause a lot of DNA mutation and cause a lot of different cancers. Um, the other thing that you're, I don't know if you're familiar with TMO, are you familiar with that? No. It's a chemical, when you eat meat, meat has high, uh, and dairy products have high choline um, levels <clears throat> in carnitine. And when, when the bacteria feed on the meat, they actually release this uh, chemical, it's TMAO, um, it actually, it's actually TMA. It goes to the liver and then it's converted to TMAO. Go on the internet, look okay. up TMAO. N Nick, um, we, we understand you're enthusiastic and we understand you're, you're, you've dove into a lot of this stuff and you understand probably a lot more than we do. Uh, if I can just put a bow about this on this, I would say that, um, you know, these mechanisms, the chemicals and everything else are not evidence for clinicians what is evidence for clinicians are anecdotes or studies and the studies have been ruined by the financial interests for the most part including the agricultural interests and so on and so forth and if you think meat is powerful uh the uh the beef people um they're they're a uh, uh they're a shadow of the rest of big agriculture you know the corn well, and all that other yeah, stuff. I, I, like I have one question for you: um, Who's going to benefit more from a study that shows that meat and dairy is good for you, versus like broccoli is good for you? Like who's going to benefit from like you know who's going to fund that study? Well, the the broad agricultural money in America is devoted to producing these sugars and other things, and I know that's that's Dr. Grieger's example is broccoli isn't profitable. And that it makes a certain kind of a sense, but it's an analogy rather than reality. The reality is, is that the big money is in the farming and these interests have been pushing us 
through this cholesterol model and a lot of other stuff, but we don't have any time left. I want to, I want to be respectful and Nick, you are someone who's worthy of respect. And I would urge my listeners to decide for themselves and look through uh, Dr. Brandy's material and have a look at Dr. Grieger's website. And I got to say, I was captivated by that for about 18 months, went vegan. And then I looked at all the other evidence that said that saturated fats are good for you and that beef is probably the healthiest uh, uh, food of all. But we're going to agree to disagree. I don't read about that because they recently said that red meat is a is a probable carcinogen and processed they, is class one they, carcinogen. They. Anyway, well, look, look, Nick, I really appreciate this. And it's a thrill to get back together with you. Nick was a an important figure in our professional group and I was a uh, also ran. So I want to, I want to, I want to tell you, Nick, I had admired your work from afar and always thought you were, you, you had two, you had twins, didn't you, who were adopted? Is right, that right. You're 29 years old now. And how, how are they doing? <laughs> They're doing great. They're doing super. And then I have a, another uh, little girl that I adopted. She's 26 now though. Um, and they're all doing great. And you had a brother who worked in your office, didn't you? Right. He worked with me. Um, he ran all the marketing and the, uh, you know, the finances and so forth. That's a wonderful ally to have family involved like that. Oh, yeah. I, sure. I, my wife worked with me. Uh, and... it, well, sometimes it is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's right. When you're in business with your brother, you get into some like, you know, close to a fist fight. <laughs> yeah. But older but or we, younger brother? We made it work. Older or younger brother? Yeah. He's one year young. When you're younger. Well, again, I'm grateful for your time. I want to stay in touch this time. And, uh, and I'm going to look at your stuff again as well. Awesome. Keep in touch. Okay. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye now.